stopped after our, our most recent election. Suddenly felt like I needed to do something bigger than myself. I needed to, to contribute somehow. And that's when I learned the, the global effects of the fashion industry. That's Jillian Clark, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Hey guys, I'm your host, Kara Duffy, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast, where I invite my favorite humans, the awesome, the up to something, and the extraordinary to come and share their story. I hope that you'll be left entertained, inspired, and moved to take action towards living your most powerful life. So many of us have been pivoting our businesses since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, Jillian's business was upcycled apparel. Her business, Robro 6, took in scrap materials from film sets, theaters, local factories, and more to create brand new, beautiful items. As she saw the impact of the pandemic spreading around the world, she pivoted to creating face masks and hasn't taken a day off yet. On this episode, we discuss her unique face mask business model that includes sponsoring masks for the medical community, how her past life of dance and theater brought her to LA, how learning more about the waste in film, TV, and fashion birthed her current business, and how now, more than ever, we all need to be more mindful of what we're consuming, spending, and wasting. All that and so much more coming up, but first. If you're interested in discovering what possibilities and businesses are available for you to create and to live your most fulfilling life, please visit thepowerfulladies.com forward slash coaching and sign up for a free coaching consultation with me. There is no reason to wait another day to not be living your best life when you instead could be running at full speed towards your wildest dreams today. All right. Well, welcome to the Powerful Ladies podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Excited of to be course. here. <laughs> yeah. And thank you for being part of our recordings while in quarantine. Yes. I mean, that's social distancing. We've got to keep it up. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, let's begin by, uh, I'd love it if you would introduce yourself and tell everyone listening like who you are and what you're up to normally and what you're up to now with what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, my name's Jillian Clark. I um, I have a company or I own a company called Robro. Uh, we are an upcycled services and design studio. And our whole mission is to reduce textile waste. Uh, Very cool. Yeah. And what we're doing at the moment, as most people that own a fashion brand or a fabric company or a sewing machine, uh, everyone's kind of taken to the call to arms to make masks, medical masks. Uh, and I'm now on week three. I've completely transitioned my West Side studio, my my workshop into a like a medical mask manufacturing facility. So I know it's it's so wild how how quickly everyone has, you know, pivoted because we've had to. Mm-hmm. And you know, one, why did you say like I can provide, like, how quickly were you like, I can provide that service, I have to do this now? And then um, how easy has it been to transition your, you know, manufacturing into that? Because you were making lots of things before, yeah. mm-hmm. and now to streamline to one thing, um, like, how did it all happen? You know, how it started, honestly, um, was 
I want to say probably three or four weeks ago, like just before this really kicked off here, I was kind of watching what was going on, you know, in Europe and my, what, what made me, you know, take a moment and, and pause and realize I was maybe going to have to like re-strategize or shift was my, I had a lot of meetings lined up. I was going to start working with a, a manufacturer in downtown, which was exciting, like for downtown LA. Downtown LA, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and those meetings started to get pushed back and then get canceled. I had a photo shoot scheduled that then got canceled, and it was kind of like again before everything kicked off, and I realized like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be big. And I'm I'm a small business, yeah. like I still have like side hustles, like it it's not bringing in a lot of revenue for me and kind of had yet. to realize yet, yet, exactly yet. <laughs> um, and so I, I had the realization, I was like, this is going to get big. This is going to get bad. And I could potentially lose the company mm-hmm. or I can, I can re-strategize. I can think about like what I can do, how can I help and how can I try and find a way to stay afloat? And there's a couple upcycled textile companies in China that I follow and a couple of them started posting on Instagram that they were making just like fashion masks. They weren't advertising mm-hmm. them as like non-medical. It was just, you know, f- fashion tends to mirror society and what's going on. And so I was like, oh, that's that's funny. That's going to start to become like a fashion statement. And, th- and like kind of was toying with the idea for a minute. And then a couple days later, I started seeing post nurses, doctors running out of medical masks. I was like, well, this is something I can do. I can help. Mm-hmm. And so set up a program where customers can sponsor a medical mask. People, you know, people who can't sew, everyone's wanting to help with this, but not everybody has the means. And so I thought if I'd set up a sponsorship program, it would give people who didn't have the means to sew the opportunity to support the mission. Um, and kind of spent a, a morning checking in with my, like, moral compass, because I also yeah. was, like, not wanting it to appear like I was trying to, like, make money off of a crisis or anything, but like recognizing this is somewhere I could jump in. Uh, and it, it took off like a wildfire. Um, within the first five days, I had a thousand masks sponsored. Um, and then people started making requests for masks for themselves. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the LA mayor, uh, Eric Garcetti just recently made the announcement that, uh, you know, all Angelinos should be wearing masks as they go out into public. And it's just been, you know, balls to the wall since then. <laughs> yeah. So I imagine you're working like 20 hour days. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but luckily, as I had, had mentioned, I did, I was starting to get systems in place to be able to scale. You know, being a small business, I was definitely positioning myself to, to scale, to scale up mm-hmm. operations. And so those, pieces were kind of already in the works, which has actually made the transition um, much smoother, like not not easy by any means, but yeah. I did already kind of have some systems in place that has allowed me to, to take larger orders to really like um, fulfill, like I was, I was worried the first couple of days that I wasn't going to be able to fulfill orders and was disappointing because I had hospitals reaching out and nurses and doctors. I mean, I've shipped already to Nebraska, Florida, Georgia. We got an order from Switzerland. Um, and so I really wanted to to find a way to to contribute. And mm-hmm. uh, yes, 
So far, so good. <laughs> and what's your website? So everyone that's listening right now is like ready to jump on and order some or sponsor. Yeah, yeah. So our website is Roboro6. Roboro is spelled R-O-B-O-R-O 6.com. Awesome. Yeah. Um, mm. And have you been surprised at like how simple it was to switch over or have you been more surprised at how many people just jumped on and suddenly I imagine your website is having more attention now than it ever has. You know, what's funny is I didn't even have a website before this. So I, yes. I've had the company for three years. I started the company in 2017. It's three years mm-hmm. ago. Um, but I, I had to uh, rebrand it recently. We went through a whole name change, a whole rebrand. So the website was still just a landing page because this rebrand happened just a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I still have to, you know, the side hustles. It's it's a slow growth. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I've just been functioning off of a landing page in my Instagram account. And when I even first started the masks, I just had people sending me uh, through PayPal. I didn't even have an online shop set up. And it was like day three that I'm like manually tracking the orders through PayPal, putting them in a spreadsheet, like where's everything going? And then people were starting to email and text uh, wanting like confirmation. It was like, oh, yeah. no, I need to streamline this. I need to like, so I like got, got an online shop up. And now all of like, again, that's one of the systems that's just made it possible for me to continue to like, you know, turn these out and make mm-hmm. sure my attention is where it needs to be. I'm not... Um, particularly tech savvy person. So (laughs) spending my time like in spreadsheets and responding to emails and like tracking all of that is not where I want my attention to be. I, I, I can do it. I don't enjoy doing it. Uh, so yeah, having, having that website up and having the shop live has been a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also (laughs) proof that you don't need anything to start. Right. So many people get stopped like, you know, well, I'll start when I have a website or I'll start when I have a logo. I'll start when I have. Yeah. But like you don't. You're like, nope, I had an email and an Instagram. Yeah. Like I completely agree. It's really that's how I started um, the company. When when I first started it, it was called MeWe Clothing Brand Um, and just like had it had an idea. It's like, I'm just going to I'm just going to start. I feel like. um you can always, like you're saying, you can always get caught up. You can kind of get in your own way. It's like, well, it's not perfect. It's not ready. And kind of my mindset is like, it's it's never going to be perfect and it's never going to be ready. I'm never going to be ready unless I just do it and figure it out. There's de- And there's definitely been times where I wish I had maybe like been a little bit more prepared, but I've always managed to like land on my feet so far. So. Yeah. <laughs> How did you get into upcycling textiles and apparel? Um, so it kind of can't, as, as it seems like most small businesses come to life, I saw a, a problem and a gap that I, I had the means to address. Um, I was actually listening to the podcast where you were interviewed recently and you had started the the nonprofit helping people find funding for a nonprofit. It sounds like you had the yeah. same approach of like, I tried to do this and it was difficult. So that's when I started a company. And that's exactly where uh, Roboro came from. I was um, 
working in film. I'm actually from Boston, which sounds like oh. you also. Congratulations. Yes, yes, yes and you. <laughs> yes, Boston Pride. Um, I was working at the Boston Ballet Company uh, in the costume department and working backstage and was designing for some thin fringe theater companies, was, you know, very involved in the theater community. And then came out to LA. I worked on a couple films in Boston and kind of had my sights set on something a little bit bigger than, you know, regional theater. And came to LA and was working as a as a costume designer in TV, film, commercial. And it was it was a couple years after I was here that it started to really um wear on me and I was starting to become more and more aware of the amount of waste that was produced on film sets. Everything from like catering being thrown away to scripts being printed out every day for every department. Even, you know, my own department costumes, just like we overbought or one thing that kind of I didn't really like this, the system of buying and returning. I felt like it could, if you're, if you're buying from a small business that hurt the small business. And then I also felt funny about working with these big budgets and supporting all these fast fashion brands. It's like, we've got all of this, this money. Why don't we support local businesses, small businesses? And it was funny. I had never really, I had always been in entertainment and the arts and I had never really considered the business world like that. And it was, it was like a fun new little like a hobby for me to start researching and like started researching the fashion industry, which I had never really been interested in. I'd always been costume, historical costume and theater. That was my world, even though yeah. costume and fashion are so intertwined. It had never been much of an interest to me. Um, so yeah, just like in an, in an effort to look at the film industry and be like, how can I make this more, how can I do this more sustainably? That's when I thought about like, I'm going to stop using the plastic water bottles on set. I'll bring my own water bottles, my own utensils. And, you know, I talked with a, a couple different friends, um, who were also all in production and we had had an idea to make a short film, uh, mm -hmm. fully sustainable and go to each department and figure out where their largest sources of waste were address them and make a film. And that would be the intention of the film. It wouldn't be like a documentary or anything. It'd be like a, yeah. you know, a fictional story. Um, and people loved the idea, but we couldn't get funding for it because sustainability, like to do something sustainably is always more expensive. So everyone's like, that's admirable. That's great. It's too expensive, mm -hmm. which was a little discouraging. Um, but also, it was good. It readjusted my perspective. I had to, I, I decided to think a little bit smaller instead of tackling the film industry as a whole. I yeah, went from back. A to Z. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm slightly ambitious sometimes. <laughs> I appreciate it. Me too. <laughs> um, I went back to my skill set, my department costumes. It's like, all right, let's, let's dive into this fashion world a little bit more. Let me, let me educate myself more on these these companies that I'm supporting and who I'm shopping from. And I watched the documentary, uh, The True Cost. Have you heard mm -hmm. of it? Yes. It's, yeah, it's one of those things. Once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. Like, I, that was now what I was doing. <laughs> like, um, and so how it first started was in my design work. When I was designing, I no longer, you know, I would talk to producers. I don't shop from fast fashion brands. We're going to... Things will take me a little bit longer. I need more prep time. 
it will probably be more expensive, but that was just a decision I made for myself. And it, it probably impacted the type of jobs I was hired for because it does make things more expensive, but I felt more at peace with like the work I was doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of that idea just grew from there. Over the years, I had collected fabric from every theater company, TV show, movie that I had worked on. I had a room full of fabric. It was like, one day I'll make something with these things. And then realized, like, I can upcycle production fabric into new products. That was like a, so it started as a hobby. Mm-hmm. Started talking to people about it. People were really excited by the idea. I was like, all right, this this might be a thing. And then I applied for just like a couple like markets in LA. Like the first, I think the very first market I did was Artists and Fleas in Venice on Abbot Kinney. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the response was great. People would come by the booth and a lot of people didn't know what upcycling meant. They didn't, they didn't know, you know, the global effects of fast fashion. Like they didn't know the that textile waste, you know, was a problem. Um and so it was, it was really a great, that first summer that I started kind of doing markets was a great opportunity to like chat with people and gauge the interest level. And it's, yeah, that was three years ago. <laughs> and for people who don't know, what yeah. are some of the key factors of the waste in fashion and apparel, textiles and fast fashion? Yeah, yeah. Um, so like the easiest number to share that kind of shocks people the most is that uh, fashion is the second most polluting industry. The first being oil. So we have oil and then fashion, which is at a glance hard to wrap your mind around. But then if you think about how many people there are, you know, on, on the, on the earth, um, everyone wears clothes of some sort. And it's usually you've got a closet full of clothing and you're constantly consuming and donating or throwing away. So it's just a a constant Mm -hmm. cycle of consumption. And with the fast fashion industry growing at the rate it has fast fashion being stores like H&M and Zara and and Topshop, they have a really high turnaround. Yeah. It has increased our consumption. We're now expecting to get affordable, trendy clothes every other week new styles. So that has only increased the amount of clothing that is being thrown away or donated. So it's starting to really like choke our landfills. Countries that take our secondhand clothing have been burdened with a real like an increased amounts to the point that countries are starting to to reject it. They're not taking it. So we have to find, you know, waste solutions. Um, so it, it all kind of ties into the same world as like you know, single-use plastic, people starting to to recognize that this really amazing material that's made our lives super convenient, we're now surrounded by. And it's yeah. similar with fashion and and te- not not just fashion, but also like textiles, just soft goods, fabric. When you th- when you throw it away, it doesn't go away. It just goes and sits in a landfill. And if it's not a natural fiber, it doesn't break down. And there, I, I know this is such a passion uh, topic for me. You know, yeah. So I, I worked in foot and apparel for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And it's so much fun to make stuff. And it's so frustrating to know how wasteful so much of it is. Yeah. And there's always been, for myself and a lot of my friends in the industry, this catch-22 of how can we make things and really love the process of making and 
you know, balance it out with not being wasteful? And like, how can you find the joy in something new and not always make it feel like you're ruining the entire world <laughs> by doing it? Yeah, no, it's real. It's kind of, I've almost turned it into a game for myself. Yeah. Um, I did like, as, as I was starting the company, I did kind of do a little bit of an overhaul in my lifestyle. I was like, well, let's, let's dive into this. Let's figure out how to live plastic free. Let's try being zero waste, which is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, kind of set myself a goal. I was going to buy everything secondhand, which of course you can't buy everything secondhand, but like, you know, it's good to, to set a goal and then strive for it, even if you're not a hundred percent there. Um, yeah. but anytime I have to buy something new, it's like a whole emotional roller coaster of like, can I, can yeah. I find a sustainable and ethical brand to get it from? If I can't, then what's, what's the lesser of two evils? It's, it's a whole process. So I, but it's also nice because then I don't have buyer's remorse. I know it. I've, I've researched it and I'm, I'm happy with the decision I made and yeah. it's, I, yeah, it's totally taken away the impulse shopping. Well, and there's, there's so much behind all of it. So there's a great book. I don't know if you've read it yet. Um, Inconspicuous Consumer or Consumption. I do not. I'm going to make It's it by Tatiana Slosberg. Okay. Um, it's a it's relatively new. She's an environmental writer um, based in New York, and she really dives into five areas that most people can understand where all the waste is and kind of breaks it down. Yeah. Um, but I don't think people realize when you look at fashion waste, it's not just the garments themselves. It's the shipping and yes. all the airplanes and boat shipping. It's yeah. the packaging for shipping, the packaging for getting it to customer. Yeah. Um, the fact that half of fashion is using um, synthetic materials, yeah. which all ties back to oil, yeah. um, let alone like the waste that we see as individuals. Yeah. And when I was doing research for the financial and budgeting class that um, I teach, we I was looking at trying to explain to people how um, being minimalistic uh, in any area of your life, not only can it help the environment, but it can help your budget. But it was also looking at like giving people numbers that they could compare things to. Because I hate when people throw numbers out and they're doing that all the time right now with yeah. the news. Yeah. You see a number and it's a it's like, is it big or small? I don't know because there's no comparison. Like, Right. It's horrible when anyone dies, but like I don't know, like what What's are the other things people? <laughs> right, right. And so, what I, I want to make sure there was a comparison. And so I went back to the time when people had to be the most frugal, like the Great Depression. And during the Great Depression, most women had twenty six items in their closet. Mm-hmm. Today, um, most women have over two hundred items in their closet, but we only wear yeah. like fifteen. Which yeah. is so like when you look at the the gap and there's so much that I find interesting in how we close the gap of having 200 plus things when you add in shoes, accessories, bags yeah, and people who had 26 and were fine because um, it speaks to like slowing down and yes. making decisions or doing research. It speaks to like knowing who you are and what your style is and really what you wear. It speaks to like only choosing what you love and kind of goes into the Marie Kondo space. Um, It speaks to like, are you spending your money where your values are? And to me, it's such an interesting psychological thing to go into. Um, And, you know, one of my favorite brands uh, right now is the Morvert. 
Oh, they're yeah. um, the fully. They're, yeah. I don't know if they're fully sustainable. They're highly sustainable. Most yeah. things are made in the U.S. And I just like every time I wear those clothes, I'm like, no, I love this, and I can feel good. Like it's, it's not something that I thought about before, and it's like an extra bonus when I'm wearing that versus something yeah. else. I love that, and that's like, it's something that I think most people don't give enough credit to. Um, aside from rubber, as I mentioned, I still, I'll still do like the production work and I do like, um, just like independent, like styling and contracting work. And that, that's all been like a kind of a new, um, channel for me, the kind of the input, like the, the consulting and whatnot. And it's all come together with this one. Basically, I was trying to find a way to tie in all of these different industries I've worked in. I'm now, you know, I now have a fashion brand and I, I've worked in production, but I'm also like heavily ingrained in the sustainability world. And I was recently kind of sitting down. I was like, I feel like I need to give myself a mission statement. Like the way I've, I've run Robro, I was like, I need to do this for myself and understand what's like motivating me. And what I, I came to is what, what interests me is what we wear and why we wear it. Because mm-hmm. I've never considered myself like a fashion person. I didn't go to fashion school. I'm I'm not particularly interested in trends or fashion week or, you know, what the celebrities are wearing. What I'm interested in is what you just said, in that what people wear and the choices they make are are specific to themselves and it's mm-hmm. specific to their values, their aesthetic, their, you know, what makes them feel confident. And realize that's the same thing that I was doing in entertainment as a costume designer. You're you're reading a character on the page and you're finding a way to bring that character to life to tell a story about them through what they wear. And yeah. like my personal values, I value, you know, sustainability and ethical business practices. So everything I wear has to represent that. It doesn't maybe like someone I'm passing on the street isn't going to know that about my outfit, but I know it. And that's what's I find most interesting. Like recently, uh, I've been listening to a lot of, um, you know, different podcasts and there's a, a program. I actually don't know when it was started, but I know it's fairly, fairly recent at the London College of Fashion, uh, the psychology of fashion, mm-hmm. which I think is fascinating because fashion, it's, it's yes. a commentary on society. It's like an anthropological study. It's a psychological yes. study. And that is really, really interesting to me. Um, same, same. Yeah. Anything that can cross over the economics and, and mm-hmm. not like the financial economics, but the, because economics is really the study of the numbers behind the mm-hmm. anthropology. So wherever you can cross over the economics and the anthropology and get to the why and the habits, yeah. like that is my favorite genre of all knowledge, like all of it. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think there is so much there to see. And we see the data being sold, right? Like Facebook has it, Google has it, Amazon has it. Like yeah. all these people are selling that data about us, but we don't know it about ourselves. Right. And for, at least in Western culture, when we're so obsessed with taking personality tests and like I recommend Strength Finder to my clients because it shows you something and mm-hmm. there's Myers-Briggs and Enneagrams, like all these things. There's all this information that p- other people know about us more than we know now. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see that spin full circle where what are we learning about ourselves that we can then use to make choices? Kind of like 
the most tangible uh, example we have is when um, iPhones started tracking your time and telling you about yes. it. They were already tracking it. We just didn't have the, the results. Now they're sharing the results and now we get to choose, which I think is really where the democracy of tech and choices and buying habits and everything's going to come from. Like, what do you choose? Yeah. Because um, there's so many things that we don't choose every day because we're not paying attention to it. We're not yeah. present. We don't even know it's a choice we get to make. Yeah. Um, so I, th I think that whole world is fascinating. I also think what's really interesting is how we dispose of items. I'm mm -hmm. a little bit obsessed with, um, from when I lived in Germany, they, were, they are the number one ranking country for recycling. And yep. I think part of the reason that they are is because they have every individual sorting their items. Like you have to sort it into paper, plastics, metals, glass and glass is even sorted by color yep. like you have to do it compost has to come out um there's this they are really clear of like telling people where to put your stuff when you're done with it it's not like you're done put it in a trash can it's like no no it's done and it needs a second life so you have to split it up like yeah even things like taking the cap off of your toothpaste and it gets recycled separately than the tube yeah um i i'm fascinated by who is doing that recycling? Is it working? Is it not? And just if you look at just the trash industry in general in the U.S., like you mentioned, we send a lot of our trash to other people. Yeah. And there are certain countries like China who are now rejecting our waste because they have enough of their own to deal with. Right. Um, so what are we doing with our waste? And where, like, how do we keep things out of the landfill? Like, to me, there's not enough steps. You yeah. Know, like, I'm always talking about sales funnels for people in their businesses. And, it, and this is so funny how it's switching between my consulting space and this financial class because mm -hmm. it really overlaps. Because when you're trying to make money and you're in a bind, I tell everyone to like go through your house and like get rid of everything. And like here's a hundred mm -hmm. ways to sell it for the most money before you donate it. Yeah. Like, there's lots of ways. Yeah. But then once you donate it, there's still so many steps between donating and the trash that um, I don't think most people have visibility to or awareness. And it freaks me out over, I think it was like two days after Christmas this year, a guy, you know, dressed, uh, you know, corporate, casual, mm -hmm. knocks on my door and he gives me a flyer and it's from our local trash company. And it's telling everyone like, please sort your trash, please pull out your compost because we do that here in Costa Mesa. Yeah. And... Um, because Orange County, California has like 10 of the largest landfills in the U.S. Wow. And I was like, wait, what? I didn't realize that. I, it, yeah, I have the paper. I'll, have to, I'll send you a, a screen grab of it yeah, later. But yeah, I was I like, I'm like, wait, hold on. <laughs> like, we have um, Orange County is one of the wealthiest counties in the U.S. Why is it the largest landfill? Yeah. And who, like, why don't we have this stuff set up to deal with it? Like, most things that are in the landfill do not need to be there. Right. 100%. Makes me crazy. I think it's a lot of, it's visibility and transparency. Mm -hmm. It's uh, kind of like what you were saying in that we, we're not aware, we're not present. We're so busy that, you know, if, if there's a system in place where we don't have to think about it, that's what the majority of people are going to do. And just like as a, it's just a uh, you know a societal difference here in, in the U.S. compared to places like 
you know, Europe or, or Australia that have kind of really mm-hmm. taken taken the like sustainability mission to a whole new level that we haven't we haven't done here. Maybe different different cities or different counties, but as far as like a countrywide movement, we I, like there's the quote like there's no such thing as a way when you so throw something away. It doesn't just magically disappear. It goes somewhere. And for the most part, like I said, we ship we ship it overseas. And now that countries are are rejecting it and we're having to deal with it ourselves, we're we're starting to see how much we produce. It's it's so yeah. true that out of sight, out of mind. And now that the visibility is kind of being forced upon us, we're seeing this huge movement, you know, no, no single-use plastic, no straws, no plastic bag. That's all new because China's not taking our recycling anymore. So we're having to figure it out. There's, um, mm-hmm. it's terrible, I can't remember the organization, but there's a, there's a handful of countries in Africa that we used to send all of our secondhand clothes to. Yes. And it was a, a year or two ago, they, they said, no more. We're gonna rebuild our own textile industries. We're mostly sending low quality fast fashion clothes that they can't, they can't even resell. We're basically sending them waste. Mm-hmm. And that's been a huge hit. Now we have nowhere to send that. And that's going to, I think, lead to more and more people becoming aware. Like when you yeah. donate your clothing, if you drop it at the local Goodwill, only 20% stays in the U.S. 80% of your donated clothing is shipped is shipped abroad. So like that was one thing I set myself a, a mission of was learning how to donate more responsibly. And mm-hmm. just realize that you need to donate to nonprofits that don't have the means to ship abroad. So I personally, I get a lot of uh, secondhand clothing donated to Roboro. And anything mm-hmm. I can't upcycle, I bring to the downtown women's center. Um, so like donating responsibly is, is all, it's all part of that like lifestyle change, but it's, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not. And, and um, you know, sometimes I get made fun of by my boyfriend, but in our garage, <laughs> I have like, Here's our box for e-waste stuff. Here's our, (laughs) you know, we try and like resell any clothing we can and we donate it. And then we have a box of textiles that just need to be recycled or shredded or made into dog beds or something else, right? Like we're trying so hard not to um, like put things in the garbage if we can't. Mm -hmm. And I think if I really encourage people to take on a, like just try to have zero waste for one month. See if you can do it. Yeah. Or can you can you have one trash ba- trash bag for a whole month? Yeah, and because you st- when you realize that you're responsible for getting rid of all of your stuff, if somebody tries to give you packaging, you almost yell at them. I I don't want it. Like <laughs> yeah, do not do not put that in my in my hand. Do not mm-hmm. put that. I am not bringing that in my house. If it's in my house, <laughs> I have to keep it. Like no, um, but it really is a different perspective and. Yeah. You know, there are so many ways that we can recycle great things and we can, um, but a lot of it comes to keeping it clean, which is why I think Germany does such a great job because if you're forced to separate, you know, cardboard or paper from other stuff, it's going to, especially from organic materials, it's going to stay cleaner and then it can be recycled easier. Exactly. Exactly. If you throw everything in a pile, some poor person or machine has to separate it. Who knows how good it is? And then you're stuck cleaning things before you can even start to recycle them. Or like, or you can't, or you can't recycle them. Some, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of times things are like, um, the words escaping me, but if you've got like, you know, the takeout containers, that's why you can't recycle like greasy pizza boxes because the grease will just ruin the whole, the whole batch. So it's, 
Yeah. Yeah. But once you, it does get easier for anyone who's going to try and do the zero waste thing. Like it does get easier. Like my biggest, like heartbreaking sacrifice is Trader Joe's. I love Trader Joe's. Everything comes in a plastic bag. And I've had to like, there was a point where I finally had to make a decision. It's like, either I'm not buying things wrapped in plastic or I'm not eating and I need to eat. So like there are things where you're going to learn where your, you know, where your boundaries are. But like there's again, another quote of like, we don't need everyone doing, you know, we don't need a million people. What is it? We don't need everyone doing zero waste perfectly. We need most people doing it imperfectly or, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. And and one of the best gifts that my mother's ever given me this year, she gave all of us a bunch of different size of the fruit bags, like oh, produce yeah. bags. Yeah, yeah. And they're awesome. We use them Great. all the time. Yeah. And before, I just would never use one of those plastic bags because it was just dumb. Mm-hmm. And but now it's it's actually really nice to be able to like put them in a bag properly. You don't just have like six loose apples on the checkout. <laughs> yeah. Yes. One hundred percent. Like a cart full of things like that. Yeah. Um, but it's it's great. And then another thing that I've switched over to is um, washable, reusable, like um, instead of cotton for your face, like uh, textile Hello. pads. Yeah, mm-hmm. those are great. I love yeah, the um, beeswax food wraps. It's like the mm-hmm. piece of cotton in the beeswax instead of saran wrap or plastic wrap. Yeah, yeah. we're slowly transitioning all of our stuff out. Yeah. The re- most ridiculous one that I've tried is um, – a washable uh, Q-tips series. I just got one of those. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure how it, I feel about it yet. Yeah, me too. It kind of <laughs> weirds me out. So I'm like, I feel okay using it for things like makeup application or yeah. things like that. But I'm like, cleaning out your ear seems a bit strange. Mm-hmm. And then like, you use Q-tips for so many things, like to, you know, put ointment on a wound or like, I'm like. Like, yeah, there's no, some things like, that you just need to be disposable. It's yeah. tough. I went through a, a phase of making my own toothpaste. Yeah, challenging myself, which mm-hmm. is great. Like I was able to do it and it worked. Um, didn't taste great, and it definitely felt like I was brushing my teeth with mud. Uh, yeah. But it worked, and I I tried it and I did it, and then it's like you know what this. I'm glad that I did it. Now let's find like an option because then I'd just like run out of toothpaste and be like I don't want to make more. So I've just like yeah. Now you've like watered down, like I found one that I can recycle the toothpaste tube and that's just easier. And then there's the little toothpaste bites. There's so many options to fit like your comfort level and whatnot. I actually um, really found when we've done our own toothpaste recipe, it's we, we just do a blend of like coconut oil, baking soda and peppermint. And that's all mix. I, I do use the and, like the oil pulling with like mm-hmm. coconut oil. That that was a game changer. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But I find like the baking soda is just great for teeth whitening in general. Yeah, one hundred percent. I would. That was always part of my like um, mm-hmm. uh, recipe. I think the one that I had like there was some of the like clay. And that's mm-hmm. what gave it that like really pleasant mud, mud mm-hmm. consistency. <laughs> <laughs> So as we, uh, you know, go into where your business was before it was masks, mm-hmm. um, what type of products were you making? Where were you selling them? Like, what could people expect if they're like, of course, I want to be buying like upcycled things. What yeah. were you offering? Um, so the way, you know, I've structured the company is I design based around the materials I get. So all of the materials I use, um, it's all textile waste, whether that's dead stock fabric end cuts or actual like little pieces of of like scrap fabric 
that mm-hmm. after big production cuts of factories normally will just be thrown away or, you know, recycled or processed in some way. So I would just look at my fabric inventory and kind of decide like, oh, this is a really cool silky material that would make for a nice top or, um, you know, that sort of thing. The the most popular item, uh, I do these up, I'll get secondhand denim jackets and embellish them uh, with a cactus. The, the most popular one has been a cactus pattern on the back. So I got these, I had this huge inventory of beautiful um, mud cloth scraps from a couple different home decor companies here in LA. And they're beautiful materials. And these companies, they, they held on to them because they didn't want to throw them away, but they were so small that they couldn't do anything with them. They made pillows and blankets and stuff. And I actually got the idea for the, the cactus jacket. I was on a trip, a uh, New Year's trip to Mexico. And this was, it was on, it was actually on this trip that I kind of like came up with the idea for the company. I'd already been making some stuff and like upcycling and had already tried to do the the film. And I think I was sitting in like the Phoenix airport on a layover. And finally was just like, I, I'm going to make, I'm going to make some like, like, um, I think that's when we came up with the name and having just come back from Mexico, it was like, I feel like I want to draw inspiration from where we just were the colors, the tone, the patterns. And I had all of these beautiful materials. I kind of had the like Aztec patterns and I had, you know, been living in Southern California for a couple of years and a cactus was an easy pattern that was recognized by a silhouette. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter what the material was. I could make a cactus silhouette out of any material and it would be immediately recognized. And so I did a couple, a couple samples and they, I mean, they looked cool. Like <laughs> they, they came out pretty great. Um, and like played with the design a bit, made a whole bunch, brought them to a market and they, they were hugely popular. I mean, a denim jacket is already like a classic piece Mm-hmm. If you've got a denim jacket with like a statement image, people love putting pins and patches um, and then to to share the story behind it of it's it's a secondhand garment and it's embellished with textile waste. It's like people love garments that have a story. Yeah. And upcycling, it gets a, it's a process. It's labor intensive. Um, so that it does tend to come with like a slightly higher price point. So something like a statement denim jacket, people are willing to to spend a bit more. Um, so that that's definitely been the um, our most popular item. Very cool. Um, and then yeah, again, like I said, like I was doing t-shirts, I was doing men's neckties. Recently started doing uh, more lifestyle goods, like tote bags and like yoga mat carriers. Um, mm-hmm. it's kind of the fun of working with textile waste is there's just like a world of options. <laughs> yeah. You have the entire fashion and accessories world to tap into. Yeah. I did have mm-hmm. to give myself some like parameters. I realized when like, oh, I could literally make it anything that's kind of paralyzing. Yes. Um, so I did have to come up with a way to give myself some, like I said, some, some parameters to stick within and took the inspiration I got from that trip to Mexico. And at the time, um, you know, my, my partner and I at the time were taking trips every New Year's and we'd go to a different city. 
and realized, like, you know, I'm just going to use that trip each year to be the inspiration for that year. So the first year was Mexico. So it was the cactus jackets for that year and like the mud cloth. And that was kind of like the colors and the patterns. So at least mm-hmm. if I was making a wide variety of products, at least the the vibe was the same. Yeah. Um, one year went to um, Quebec City and, and Canada. And I remember what I took away from that trip was I was, I was really inspired by the way different countries really like beautifully lived side by side up mm-hmm. there. Uh, you know, we were in Canada, there's the indigenous population, there's the the French population. And so that, when I came back, came, had come up with this idea to do uh, what's called re-roll fabric, where you take all the little pieces of fabric and you kind of puzzle piece them together and stitch it. And you get, it sounds like patchwork, but yep. it creates this really beautiful um, texture and design. So that year I played with, with re-roll and that was inspired from that trip. So that's kind of how I've like, at least the products I make, make sense together, even if they're mm-hmm. kind of all over the board. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How did you get into costume and to begin with back in Boston? Yeah. Uh, I discovered costume while I was at, um, at school. I went to UMass Amherst out in mm-hmm. Western Massachusetts and I was originally a dance major. I'd, I uh, was a ballet dancer all growing up, and and it was my sophomore year of college. I was just taking a history gen ed class, and I had signed up for the history of fashion because it sounded more interesting than, you know, I wasn't particularly interested in, like, a world history class. This was just going to be, like, an easy I – I just wanted to get an A and move on. History of fashion, easy. Mm-hmm. And loved it. I found it so, and it was not what I expected it to be. I expected it to be clothes, clothes and learning about designers and whatnot, which it was partially that, but it was much more a study on how world events impacted fashion, how Mm -hmm. world wars, the depression, um, women's rights, all of these things impacted fashion. And I had never looked at the industry. I'd never looked at clothing through that lens and find it really interesting. And my my professor um, had recommended that I take a couple costume design classes. She's like, well, if you like this, you might like this. And so, and I had never been a theater person, like ba- ballet and theater, they go hand in hand. But like, I was a dancer. I didn't, you know, I wasn't necessarily behind the, the scenes. I was always like the right. performer. You weren't part of the drama. You were a dancer. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she says with an air of drama. <laughs> um, yeah, I just uh, really took to the the costume design. I liked the way, in the way that like dancing, you translated an emotion to the stage. You could do the same with clothing for an actor. Mm-hmm. And I I switched majors. I. To, like I, I left the the dance program and joined a program called the BDIC, which is um, a bachelor's degree with individual concentration. You basically get to build your own major. Um, and like, I've always, you know, looking back, you know, as you reflect back on your life and realize this is definitely a trend throughout my life where I don't take the linear route. I'm like, oh, well, that is what most people are doing. Let me make it more difficult for myself. I'll do yeah. it this way. <laughs> um, so that was like definitely an example. Like I had to choose my own major title, choose my own requirements. Of course, you worked with like um, 
mentors and whatnot. But yeah, um, you still had rules to follow. But yeah, but mm-hmm. really, it was kind of your own making. So I graduated with a degree in design for theater and dance with a focus on costumes. And when I I graduated, I didn't. Um, I liked, I went and spent a summer at a theater festival. I just kind of, I dove into every opportunity I could. I spent a, a semester abroad in London and took an internship at a theater company in Notting Hill so I could learn about running a box office and setting up a theater, like all these things I didn't know. And so I really yeah. just like dove into it. Um, I moved, like after I graduated, I moved to London um, for six months just to kind of like, you know, everyone needs that like headspace clearing time after four years at school came back and went into Boston and went around to all the companies that had costume departments I went to the ART at Harvard I went to the Huntington Theater at Boston University I went to the Boston Ballet Company and just like do you do you have internships can I can I come in can I learn can I can I get some on job you know on-site training and the ballet company uh, called me back, which was kind of a dream considering I had been a ballet dancer and Boston Ballet was always like the goal. Uh-huh. So it felt kind of poetic that the company I always wanted to work at, I now was working at potentially, you know, in a different capacity than I had originally yeah. imagined. Um, and I was there for four years and, and to this day is probably one of my favorite jobs uh, that yeah. I had. And yeah, started in the costume shop transitioned into, you know, splitting my time between the costume shop and working backstage as the um, assistant wardrobe supervisor. Started designing, you know, small theater productions, which was a lot of fun. And then, um, mo- you know, there's a couple movies a year come through Boston. I PA'd on a couple films. And I mean, honestly, what sold me on film was they fed you. <laughs> do that in theater. <laughs> yeah. This, this is great. They pay for my guests and they feed me. I moved to LA. <laughs> um, of course, more thought went into it than that. But yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's came out to LA and just tried my hand at television and film. I just kind of kept like leveling up the costume mm-hmm. design game. And then, you know, everything, I mean, realistically, everything changed after our, our most recent election. Suddenly felt like I needed to do something bigger than myself. I needed to, to contribute somehow. And that's when I learned the, the global effects of the fashion industry. It's like, well, I think this is, I think this is now what I'm doing. Yeah. There's, I think a lot of people kind of have gotten onto that path as well of seeing that if you don't like the way something is happening or working, or, you know, it can be done better how how can you do something about it yeah. and i love that that that's how a lot of people feel right now and i also love asking the question you know, going back to our conversation a little bit earlier of how do we make it all happen yeah so how can we make new beautiful items and like so love all the you know parts of fashion that have no sustainability thoughts at all like how can we just make things look amazing and exciting and people be like a yes? Yeah. But how can we do that plus be sustainable and plus be responsible? And how can we do it all? Like yeah. you said earlier that sometimes you fall into the space of being too ambush- ambitious. Yeah. 
And I'm like, good. Like, how do we get more people there? Like, how do we check every box? Yeah. Because uh, that's where the fun is. That's where changing something completely is going to be. Um, like, even now with they've uh, someone quickly invented a method to um, sanitize the um, medical face masks. Uh-huh. Like, they've just come up with a way to do it where just they basically like, <laughs> hang them all in a thing and, like, steam them. Mm-hmm. Or I I'm t- do not know if steaming is the correct term, but it's basically they go into a chamber and they get cleansed and they come out. And they can still use them a couple of times, not forever, but it get, you get to use them more. Something. And it really is this, you know, necessity is the mother of invention time. Yeah. And whether it's for your own business or for what we need to do on the front lines right now, I think so many of us feel this strange um, bipolarism in what's happening because most of us are in our house doing whatever we can to keep our business going or keep our sanity or keep some sort of normalcy. Yeah. And it can be so far removed from what's happening in a hospital right now. Right. And the people in the hospital have no idea what's really happening for people who are at home. Like, I've been working so hard since this (laughs) happened, like, so many hours that whenever I hear people be, like, talking about being bored, I'm like, just stop talking. Like, I'm be really glad that you're bored. Yeah. Like be grateful that you are bored and that's where you're at because I don't yeah. know anyone right now that's bored. Everyone I know is working their ass off. And then we are even the people who aren't battling it on the front line. So those people right. are exhausted. Like yeah. they're not sleeping. They're not eating. Like they don't even get to pee sometimes because yeah. they can't change their PPE. Right. Like so it's like I don't think people are realizing the depth of sacrifice that a very small percentage of people are making for us right now so that mm-hmm. we have the privilege to stay home. To stay home and be bored and have yeah. some happy hours with our friends. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that there's definitely a, a line of we need to bring some of that reality to everyone else. And I think also mm-hmm. if we compare it to like World War II, yep. um, people – Everyone felt like they could do something to contribute. Mm-hmm. And I think what's beautiful about your company right now is you're giving people an option to participate. Yeah. Um, like some people, all they can do, like my parents, all they can do is stay home and avoid everyone. Yeah. But what it's the they, best thing they can do. <laughs> right. But what they can do is go online and sponsor some masks and yes. still be a contribution without risking themselves or somebody else. Yes, exactly. So, um, thank you for making that a possibility oh, for people. My absolute pleasure. I just like, yeah. just grateful to be able to to be able to help to help the people that are actually like keeping us all safe. To to have something to keep me occupied and busy mm-hmm. because I don't I don't deal well with like having nothing to do. As me you know, either. I think mm-hmm. anyone who's kind of entrepreneurial mindset they need to be busy. Yes. So like. That has been helping me with like just my mental health and sanity. But yeah, it feels good to contribute and to help. And I wanted other people to have that same feeling. So I'm I'm grateful that the the sponsorship program is is offering that to people. Yeah. yeah. How many masks are you producing a day? So if I'm like really cranking through them by myself, um, without you know, having to do the social posts and the responding and the tracking, I can get through about 50 masks a day on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, 
I'm never just cranking through without having to do the social and the keeping up. Um, so I have, I've, I've been working on some here. I have, I mentioned a manufacturer in downtown LA who's been like a lifesaver. They've been really great to work with. And then I've had just like a couple friends volunteering again, people who can. So who are like, can I help? Is there yeah. anything I can do? Mm-hmm. So the systems in place right now is I've got a couple different teams working on them at once. Okay. Um, but yeah, can, I personally can crank through about 50 a day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then if people put an order in today about mm-hmm. how long is the lead time to get their order fulfilled, and I'm sure it matters their quantity, but like the, the what's, quantities, what's the rough turn time? So if you're getting one for your, so I have two options. You can sponsor a mask where you you pay and then they're donated to a hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and those ones are being made by the, the factory in, in mm-hmm. downtown. And those ones, it's about a week. Um, and the personal masks, because the quantities are lower, you can sponsor, you know, one to 10 to, I mean, I've had people sponsoring 100 masks. So that yeah. takes a little bit longer. Personal masks, I can get out in about a week. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, now that the, I think the first round of people who put in orders would argue they differently. <laughs> they probably took them about two weeks or so. But yeah. now that the systems are in place and the workflow is going, it's it's a much smoother turnaround time. Well, I still think that you should give yourself credit for <laughs> having a two-week lead time when you initially pivoted and now you're down to one within two weeks. <laughs> you are scaling faster than a lot of other industries. So Thank good you. job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, when you look back at your life and you know, the path you've taken and who you were as a kid and everything – would anyone have predicted that this is what you were doing now? You know, pro- I don't know if they would have predicted this specifically. I think probably wouldn't be surprised that it's something aesthetically driven, that it's something that is wanting to help in some way. like um wanting to help people wanting to help the planet wanting to do do good like mm-hmm. i know i think there was like a short while where i considered like the the nonprofit sector but like i also you know my my mom's worked in in nonprofits for a long time and i've just seen that while it's rewarding work it's not always financially rewarding yeah and like that just wasn't you know i got student loan debt, I've got bills to pay, like that just wasn't, it wasn't necessarily an option. And I was always curious, like it, curious if there was a way to do good and pay your bills. And so like, there (laughs) is, it's very exciting. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone would be surprised to see that this is the, the unique setup I've managed to curate for myself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We ask everyone on the podcast where they rate themselves on the powerful ladies scale, zero being average everyday human and Mm -hmm. 10 being, you know, exceptional, powerful lady. Where do you feel on average? Where do you feel Mm -hmm. today? And I think I'm going to even ask you for a double today number, because how would you have put yourself, uh, on average before the pandemic happened and how would you put yourself now that you're in full mask making pivot mode hmm all right so on average i would say 
like at least recently, the past like year. So I'd probably put myself up at like a seven or like I think a seven's probably like a good average. Okay. Because like, you know, everyone's a little like self-critical sometimes, but like you talk yourself out of that headspace. Um I think and then what were the two you wanted me to double today? Well, before pandemic yeah. and before pandemic, after pandemic, and today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before sounds Bef- like a seven. Mm-hmm. Before probably like a seven. Um mm-hmm. on a good day, like a good day eight. Mm-hmm. I think now since pandemic, I I think I've been feeling particularly at the risk of sounding, I don't know, conceited, like like an eight or a nine even. The fact that I've like, it's been scary. Like there's definitely been days where I've had like meltdowns and like, I'm not going to be able to fulfill this. I'm making promises I can't keep. Mm-hmm. And I, I've impressed myself um, that I've, I've been able to figure it out and each each challenge that has presented itself, I'll have like a little meltdown and then I have to pick myself up and then figure it out. Mm-hmm. And grant it's been, it's been two or three weeks now. So it's still like a very short period of time, but yeah, I've been, I think I'm doing pretty well. I'm pretty proud of myself. Um, and today I put myself at like an eight or a nine, because like I said, I, I gave myself today as a break and I haven't been, really good at that the past couple weeks. It's very much just like, I just need to keep going. I need to keep going. People mm-hmm. place orders. I need to get these out. Like the doctors and nurses aren't, they aren't taking breaks. Like, and if I'm mm-hmm. wanting to help, like, who am I in thinking that I deserve a night with like a glass of wine and Netflix? Yeah. But like, if you don't give yourself a break and a rest, then you'll burn out and it's not sustainable. And it's just, mm-hmm. you know, hurting myself and hurting the cause in the long run so like today even like allowing myself um a little break I I feel pretty like empowered by mm-hmm. uh, so yeah I've been feeling it's just weird in in such like a strange difficult time it has been like a weird silver lining that I I feel like I've risen to a challenge <laughs> No, it's, it's like I, I, I the think silver lining have... is for the the situation, I suppose. Yeah, like the yeah. world, the world global situation. I, I think it's so important one to always be finding the silver linings, and if mm-hmm. some people want to call it the purpose of why it's happening or whatever, right? You want to frame it up at, but there really always is um, a lesson or a positive thing that you're getting out of every experience, as as hard as some of them can be. Um, but I, I think that people get confused about happiness and where that comes from. And to me, it comes from like having confidence and contentment in who mm-hmm. you are and what you're up to. And the only way that you get confidence, um, is through, like, like you said, rising through a challenge and it's super hard and you figure it out and you're like, oh, I can do that. And you get yeah. to like put it in your belt and then you go on to the next thing and, you, but you have to go through that hard phase in order to get the confidence, which allows you to have the happiness. And I think so many people are yes. trying to skip that and just be happy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, it's, you, it's like a reward. It's not something you can just generate by like laying, by being like still. But that's like the, not in the opposite way of like 
you can be happy in yoga and meditation. Like that's mm-hmm. a different thing. That's like a present, yes. like harnessing of it. But in, in regards to expansion, happiness, yeah. you really have to go through that, either climb the mountain or go through the fire to, to earn it as a badge. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You have to to appreciate it, to appreciate like, oh, I got here. I did it. If it's mm-hmm. just handed to you, if it just comes easily, it you don't have the same level of appreciation. You don't, you know, it's, um, you know. You don't even acknowledge it half the time. Exactly. You just, you're not aware. It just, it just blows past you. And like, it's also then not a lesson that you can yeah. take on to the next time you run into a challenge. If, you know, if, if you've been completely challenge free, when you do finally run into something, you don't have the tools to yeah. handle that. So, yeah. Yeah. Who are some women that have inspired you uh, along the way? Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, so, so many. Like, I I had mentioned, like, my mom has worked in the the nonprofit and and like like any mother daughter relationship, we definitely like my teenage years. They probably weren't great for her, <laughs> <laughs> um, but she is she's definitely one who has had to overcome a lot. She hasn't had like an easy an easy go of it, mm-hmm. but she always figures it out. Um, and that's been you know that's it's been a good thing for me to to watch. And like, especially like, I think any woman who's come from earlier generations too, like, you know, my mom is a strong feminist and she's what I, you know, learned, you know, what feminism was and coming from a different, different generation. I feel like we, I kind of owe it to the women who did that sort of work earlier to keep up that fight because, you know, otherwise it was, it was all for, for not, um, So absolutely that kind of learning from learning from her and learning from like the struggles she went through and seeing how she overcame Um, in my like professional life or like right right now I'm hugely inspired by um, Greta Thunberg. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. she is, you know, just put herself on the world stage and is taking you know, praise and abuse and being, you know, a young girl to, to withstand that and to, to stand up for what she believes in. I think that is giving, you know, a whole generation of kids, someone to look up to. And right now, like, you know, with the political state, the way it is with the climate, the way it is, the people who are going to have the biggest impact is that generation. And I think it's incredibly brave what she's been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm, just, I'm inspired by people who who stand for what they believe in, even in the face of adversity, is very admirable. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who's listening who, like, doesn't know what they believe in yet mm-hmm. um, or feels like that it's an area that they need to dive into – Again, it's like the similar thing. It's like, you know, read some books, watch some. There's so many documentaries yeah. on Netflix on every different topic or, you know, go into Google or call someone that you know that, you know, to see what they're passionate about. I'm always amazed yeah. at what other people are really committed to. Yeah. We recently recorded with um, Melissa DeMonts and 
she's a badass at like a whole nother level. But then she's saying how she volunteers. And she's like, you know, she already has a full schedule. And she's like, yeah, big brothers and this and happy period. Like she literally listed like 10 things that she does. And I'm like, <laughs> I think you are a whole nother level of human with how much time you apparently make out of a day. Um, I'm impressed by but, those people. <laughs> right? Um, but I, there's so many like amazing things. And I think that if there's something that upsets you or calls to you, like lean in and do the research, like yeah. just like you did. Yeah, just something mm-hmm. like it could be sparked by by an interest. It doesn't like you're not even going into it thinking it'll be a passion. And yeah. your passion also doesn't have to doesn't have to be a cause. Like you can be passionate mm-hmm. about your friends. Be mm-hmm. be the best friend you can possibly be. Be there for your family. Like I think yeah. a lot of people when they talk about like their passion or their mission, people think it needs to be something, you know, a big global cause. It doesn't yeah. have to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as long as you're, you're, whatever it is that you love, do that wholeheartedly. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, as we wrap up today, is there anything that we didn't get to talk about that you really want everyone listening to know or to um, go explore? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I mean, right now, I think right now being the time that we're in, just stay home, one. (laughs) Stay home, stay safe, check in on your parents, check in on your grandparents. um, Buy yourself a mask. Buy yourself a mask, sponsor masks. If you have those N95 masks, donate them to your local hospital. Um, That, and just like, be good to each other. Everyone is sitting at home on their computers, on social media. And, you know, I've been going through and reading comments on like different posts and whatnot. And like people get, they get very brave behind a screen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't, right now is when we need to to be caring and supportive and and show that like, again, in the face of adversity, like humans are are good people. Like we're we can we have the ability to love and support and be there for each other and i think it's important in times like this that that's what we choose to do instead of you know the negative and you know the internet trolls and you know yeah just just be good to each other <laughs> incredible well <laughs> this has been such an honor so nice to meet you so great to be able to share your story it's so important what you're doing right now so thank you again Um, Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Part of what I love about having this podcast is that I have the honor to showcase amazing people like Jillian, people who are working hard, making a difference, all while being intentional and aspirational. You can take on what seem like big issues or big problems to solve. Start exactly where you are and start by changing what you can. It's the small changes that add up for you and over time and for the world. I love that Jillian has given us a way to be a contribution to the front lines while we stay home and protect each other. To connect, support, follow, and buy masks from Jillian today, you can visit her website, roboro6.com, or you can email her, hello at R-O-B-O-R-O-6 dot com. 
We will also have links to um, her website, her email, her Instagram, and her Facebook, all on the show notes, which can be found at thepowerfulladies.com forward slash podcast. Stay home and stay safe. I hope you've enjoyed this new episode of the Powerful Ladies podcast. If you're a yes to Powerful Ladies and want to support us, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Make sure to give us a five-star rating and leave a powerful review on Apple Podcasts. You can also be one of our Patreons for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com forward slash powerful ladies. We can get access to exclusive content that we're making just for you. Follow us on Instagram at powerful ladies and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And of course, visit our website, thepowerfulladies.com for all the latest news, details, and updates. I'd like to thank our producer and audio engineer, Jordan Duffy. Without her, this wouldn't be possible. You can follow her on Instagram at Jordan K. Duffy. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, I hope you're taking on being powerful in your life. Go be awesome and up to something you love. This episode of The Powerful Ladies is made possible by our Patreon subscribers. Did you know that for as little as $1 a month, you can support this podcast? You can send us love, tell us that you want more. You can support all of our events and all that we're doing in the world to fulfill on our full circle of empowerment. It starts at $1 a month. That's less than the coffee you're drinking a day. And there's so many more levels that give you more bonuses and fun things and behind the scenes information. So go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash powerful ladies and support us today. Thank you in advance.